Over the past decades, practice of yoga has become increasingly popular across the world, outside its traditional home in India. Studios in bohemian neighborhoods of western cities, parks and suburbs, and virtual classes taken in homes, each are filled with people practicing ancient poses and routines. Many, however, are unaware of the ancient spiritual meaning of yoga and how the practice extends far beyond only physical activity. In order to gain a fuller understanding, one must go back to the oldest and most foundational stories and texts in Indian tradition. When these texts are met on their own terms, they will be found to contain wisdom not only for the spiritual seeker, but also practical wisdom for daily life, treated with the same level of importance. Likely no text is a better representation of the Indian value of both the spiritual and the practical life than the Bhagavad Gita. The Gita, considered by many to be the most important text in the Indian tradition, examines spiritual life and earthly duty, how to pray and how to act, how to gain knowledge and how to empty the mind. Though the story of the Gita is set on an ancient battlefield, it will become clear that it is truly speaking of how to navigate the battles of life and how one can find their own path through chaos. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. The Bhagavad Gita is a central part of the Indian epic, the Mahabharata, which tells the story of an ancient civil war between two factions seeking control of a family's kingdom. The story is long, seven times as long as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, or five times the length of the Bible, long. Needless to say, this episode will barely be able to scratch the surface of the epic, but we will focus on its decisive moment, the key battle in the war, which is the backdrop for the Bhagavad Gita. The war is said to have erupted between cousins and the family ruling the ancient Kuru kingdom, after the rightful rulers, known as Pandavas, were cheated out of the throne by the ruling Kauravas. The cousins at first try to make peace, with even Hindu gods said to have led the negotiations. But when it is clear that negotiations have failed, each side readies themselves for battle. Both the Pandavas and the Kauravas have legendary warriors, but our story follows one, Arjuna, the Pandava prince known to be the greatest archer in the world. The Bhagavad Gita begins with Arjuna emotionally surveying the battlefield, guided on a chariot by the god Krishna. He is able to see across the field and it is at this time that he truly recognizes the tragedy of war. Surveying the opposing army, Arjuna does not 
see bloodthirsty barbarians or mindless zombies, but his own family, teachers and friends, elders and companions. And while it is true that Arjuna's side did not start the war or commit the injustices leading to it, seeing the human toll of the war causes him to feel a great sadness and pain, which he shares with his guide. Krishna, I see my kinsmen gathered here wanting war. My limbs sink, my mouth is parched, my body trembles, the hair bristles on my flesh. The magic bow slips from my hand, my skin burns, I cannot stand still, my mind reels. They're teachers, fathers, sons. I do not want to kill them, even if I am killed, Krishna. Evil will haunt us if we kill them, though their bows are drawn to kill. Arjuna is torn between his duty to fight for justice and his duty to keep his family together. These conflicting responsibilities leave Arjuna frozen, wishing that he could just surrender and be killed. But what follows is a dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna, who seeks to convince his friend to fight. Arjuna, dejected, wishes that he could simply lay down his arms, surrender, and allow himself to be killed by his Kaurava cousins. Yet, he knows it would be wrong to give up fighting for a just cause. Arjuna tells Krishna his conflicted feelings. We do not know which weight is worse to bear, our conquering them or them conquering us. We will not want to live if we kill the cousins assembled before us. Conflicted sacred duties confound my reason. So I ask you to tell me decisively, which is better? I'm your pupil. Teach me what I seek. I see nothing that could drive away the grief that withers my senses, even if I won kingdoms of unrivaled wealth. The god Krishna responds to Arjuna, teaching him a way to navigate life's conflicting duties and challenges through practicing yoga. Now, this might sound strange to think that stretches and poses are the key to finding peace in life, let alone in war, but the Gita explains that yoga is a far deeper and more fruitful practice than only the physical element. Krishna tells Arjuna that there are many paths one may take on life's journey, but he uses one word to describe them all, yoga. Now here is where it's important to forget the idea of yoga being only an exercise practice, but don't worry, we will get back to that. See, in the Gita, the word yoga takes an older, more foundational meaning. The word yoga in the Sanskrit language of ancient India means joining. Like the English word yoke, the name for an old farming tool which joins animals together, the word yoga means a joining of one's life to one's divine purpose. And just as there are many types of people, each with their own unique purpose, 
there are many types of yoga. Krishna spends the Bhagavad Gita helping Arjuna, the legendary warrior, discern his true purpose. From the story's beginning, we've seen how Arjuna is torn between his duties as both a citizen and as a member of his family, as both a soldier for justice and as someone who sees war as a last resort. To help him find what is right, Krishna tells Arjuna of the many types of yoga, the many paths one can take to join oneself to one's purpose and live one's best life. Krishna tells Arjuna that through its many paths, yoga is a way to find oneself. He gives instructions for meditation, to fix a stable but soft seat in a peaceful place, and to focus the mind without falling prey to overactive thoughts and senses. With a straight and steady posture, one should discipline one's thoughts and find peace in oneself without the external world getting in the way. With this starting point of a clear mind, one can proceed to find and travel down the path that is right for them. Of the many types of yoga discussed in the Bhagavad Gita, the physical practice popular today, called Hatha Yoga, actually takes a relatively minor position. But as we will see, its principles carry through into the three major types of yoga. These three most important paths are the path of action, known as karma yoga, the path of knowledge, jnana yoga, and the path of prayer and devotion, bhakti yoga. And while each of these branches of yoga are unique, they share key characteristics and the same goal of becoming the best version of oneself. Each path exists to connect the yogi to their greater purpose, which again is unique just as each person is unique. This is why the Gita gives no one-size-fits-all approach, because of a belief that each person has their own role to play in the unfolding of the world. For someone who is moved by compassion and love for one's neighbor, practicing karma yoga, the path of action, would help them to better serve. For one who asks deep questions and enjoys time alone, practicing jnana yoga, the path of knowledge, would be a better fit. Yes, introverts of the world, you may breathe a sigh of relief. It doesn't all require going out and meeting people. And still, for the person who prefers a life, centered around faith and the comfort of prayer, the devotional path of bhakti yoga exists. The only yoga that is superior is that which best helps the one who practices. The text itself affirms this when Arjuna asks Krishna to compare the path of action, karma yoga, to the academic life of philosophy, which Krishna answers. Men of yoga reach the same place that the philosophers attain. He really sees philosophy and yoga to be one. Now is a great time to remember the setting of the Gita's story, as opposing armies prepare for a great battle. Arjuna had spent his life training as a soldier, 
and becoming the greatest archer in the world. But remember, he became torn between whether he should fight or surrender, not out of fear for his own life, but out of a desire to stop the war. His dialogue of questions and answers with Krishna, though, provides an answer that Arjuna should make a choice based on his beliefs, his personality, and his path in life. And Arjuna does make a choice. He chooses to fight. Now this does not by any means make the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata to which it belongs a pro-war text. After all, it influenced such famous peacemakers as Gandhi and Thoreau. It is indeed the purpose of a diplomat to make peace, as it is the purpose of a king to rule justly, as it is the purpose of a family not to turn against each other in jealousy, and indeed if these roles had been followed earlier in the epic poem, there never would have been a need for war. But Arjuna is not a diplomat, he is not a king, and he is not a deceiver. He is a soldier. And even more, Arjuna is a soldier who's dedicated his life to a just king who committed no betrayal and who tried to solve the conflict peacefully. The war could have indeed been avoided if the opposing Kauravas did not steal the throne and dishonor their agreements. But there's nothing that Arjuna can do to change that. No more than an allied soldier in the Second World War could have stopped Germany's rise. What Arjuna can do is stand up for what he believes is right. Standing up for justice is Arjuna's way to become his best self, also called his Dharma. Dharma is a broad concept, meaning what is natural and right for one to do for the world to function harmoniously. And this applies from the highest levels with the dharma of a country being to serve its people down to the most foundational. For example, with the dharma of gravity being to pull things down. Now, this may seem like a strange comparison to make, but it goes to show that in the Indian spiritual tradition, for someone to try and live another's life would be just as absurd and disastrous as if we all stopped coming back down to earth and just floated off into space. This all comes to a high point in the mystical climax of the story, when Arjuna asks his guide, the god Krishna, to show him his true form. Here Arjuna sees countless people, worlds, and galaxies being born and destroyed. As the book describes, if the light of a thousand suns were to rise in the sky at once, it would be like the light of that great spirit. Arjuna saw all the universe in its many ways and parts, standing as one in the body of the God of Gods. Witnessing creation, preservation, and destruction on the largest scale causes Arjuna to feel equal parts fear and reverence. He sees all things and all times at once and understands himself to be a part of the same system which propels the universe in birth, 
life, death, and renewal. And while he's amazed, Arjuna soon begs Krishna to return to the form of the charioteer that he knows. And he does. The aftermath of this vision does not, however, fill Arjuna with fear and dread. He does not feel insignificant compared to the great cosmic system that he sees. Instead, the importance of following one's dharma and living one's best life as a part of that cosmic system becomes clear. Arjuna sees how much the great cosmic system depends on him being a piece of it. Experiencing a greater reality, Arjuna does not renounce his earthly life like an ascetic who tries to avoid as much life as possible, nor does he punish himself to detach himself from his body. Rather, Arjuna sees himself as a part of something greater and decides to live his best life in order to be the best part of that system that he can. This is the greater purpose to which he joins himself through yoga. This, then, is the spiritual symbolism of yoga at its many levels. And as the Bhagavad Gita tells Arjuna's journey to join himself to his greater purpose as a soldier for justice, the overall practice of yoga is the joining of the many unique particulars into a greater whole. It should be noted, this is not accomplished by forcing things into a place where they do not fit, but guiding them to harness their own strengths in the most fulfilling way. Those who might know their history may think of India's caste system. It should be noted that in classical India, around the time of the Gita, your role was not something you were born into, but was chosen based on your attributes and preferences. So in this way, the Dharma of Indian tradition mirrors the concept of vocation in Western religious tradition or that of self-actualization in psychology. It is also here that the greater meaning of the physical practice, Hatha Yoga, is seen. As one trains but not forces the body to become the greatest version of itself. If you've taken a class, you may have been told that if you feel pain in yoga, then you're going too hard. But as a yoga teacher of mine once said, if it were about stretching and bending, then circus performers would be the most enlightened people in the world. Through this reading, the overall message of yoga is seen to be this, to peacefully join one's body with one's mind and oneself to one's surroundings. And this practice is as unique as each person working to one's individual strengths. Practically, this means to take one's life and oneself, as flawed as they may be, and view them as a gift. It's okay if you can't make the stretch. And by joining these many levels, both internal and external, there is no reason to envy the lives of others. Instead, accepting one's own unique path in life and living it to its highest potential.
Thank you for joining in this episode. This is a very ambitious task. Um, I am much more comfortable in the Western tradition, so I would like to thank uh, Dr. R, a brilliant professor of mine, for helping me to understand the Gita. And I'd also like to thank Neil on Discord for helping with some of the uh, word choices and translations and understanding of Sanskrit in Hindu classical belief. That said, next month, we are definitely going back to my comfort zone to give a little bit of a break. So we will be having a smaller story from Greek myth. And uh, then we have some big plans going forward. I'm looking forward to having you along for the ride. You can support by leaving a like, leaving a comment, letting me know if there's something we missed, letting me know if there's something we enjoyed. And uh, if you really enjoy, there's a link to Patreon as well, where you can provide support and gain benefits in other ways too. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.